Section 9 of The Science History of the Universe, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gary B. Clayton. The Science History of the Universe, Volume 6, edited by Francis Rolt Wheeler. Zoology, Chapter 6, The Vertebrates, Fish. The vertebrates, or backboned animals, including fish, amphibia, reptiles, birds, and mammals, with man, are markedly differentiated in their plan of organization from the radiates, mollusks, or arthropods. This new plan of organization, leading to a higher plane of development, has made the vertebrate the dominant type of animal life not indeed in numbers of individuals or species, as some naturalists would interpret dominance, but as individually higher types, better fitted for success in the struggle for existence. They have further opened the way, in the development of man, for the inception of a new era, the psychozoic era as it has been aptly called by Leconte, in which intellect becomes the principal factor in the evolution of life, controlling its environment, guiding its development, and leading to results which we can but dimly foresee, even as to those immediately before us. In a brief review of the plan of organization of the vertebrates, it will appear wherein these advantages lie. In all vertebrates there is an internal skeleton, of which the central feature is the backbone, originally developed from the notochord, a segmented strip of cartilage later converted into bone, forming the nucleus of the spine. This internal skeleton, as against the external skeleton of most invertebrates, affords certain marked mechanical advantages in giving the muscles a better purchase and enabling them to control the action and movements of body and limbs more powerfully. Now it is a fundamental fact of mechanics that with every doubling of the dimensions of a structure, the relative strength of its materials is reduced by one half. So that larger constructions, to perform what is relatively the same work, must be more massively proportioned, or made of stronger material than smaller ones. This is equally true of animals. The larger an animal is, the more powerful and strongly constructed must it be, in order to have the same amount of activity and obtain its proportional amount of food. It is a common saying that if a flea were the size of an elephant, he could jump over the spire of the highest cathedral in Europe. But any engineer can see the absurdity of this statement. If a flea were the size of an elephant, he would in fact be unable to lift his body off the ground. His proportionate strength would be one 4,320th of what it is, and in all probability would not hold his body together. His apparent strength is merely due to his minute size. If vertebrates and invertebrates of equal size be compared, the greater strength and activity of the vertebrate is immediately perceived. Now, size is a very important factor in the dominance of an animal and a superior organization of the vertebrates which has enabled them to attain much larger size is in no small degree due to their having an internal skeleton. Many vertebrates have also developed for protection an external skeleton of scales or plates, and the most ancient of fossil vertebrates were well armored externally, 
while the internal skeleton was still composed of cartilage not yet hardened into bone. The nervous systems of vertebrates consist of a spinal cord along the back just above the notochord, and a brain developing at the front end of the notochord. The brain is more concentrated into a single mass than in invertebrates, where its functions are partly distributed among ganglia in different parts of the nervous cords. This naturally makes for more centralized and better correlated control of the different parts and organs of the body, and facilitates the development of intelligence and reasoning powers. In the highest invertebrates, there is a marvelous development of accurately coordinated automatic action and complexity of instinct, but they seem to be unable to attain high intelligent or reasoning powers. In vertebrates, while the instincts are less elaborate and complex, the observer is impressed with the relatively intelligent character of their activities, with their ability to respond to new sensations and accommodate themselves to new conditions of life. This is to be connected with their more concentrated brain, and from the first the nervous system appears to have been more concentrated in vertebrates than in any of the invertebrate groups. All vertebrates breathed primarily by gills. The water which aerated the gills entered through the mouth and making its exit through gill slits on either side of the throat. Fishes and tadpoles still breathe this way, but land animals have become adapted to breathing air by means of the lungs. Rudimentary lungs are present in many primitive fishes, serving to assist the gills in aerating the blood when, as in stagnant ponds, the supply of oxygen in the water was not sufficient for the needs of the fish. In the more typical modern fish, this rudimentary lung has been converted into the so-called swim bladder, serving to adjust the weight of the body to the water around by compressing or expanding the air contained in it, and perhaps for adjusting the amount and quality of air in the blood. It is interesting to observe that the embryos of all land mammals, including man, pass through a stage in which they possess gill slits, although these serve no purpose in the life of the young animal. All vertebrates except certain very lowly types possess paired appendages, fins, limbs, or wings. These consist always of two pairs, never more, and originate in an entirely different way from those of arthropods, as folds of skins along the side of the body, becoming concentrated into fins or paddles and thence converted into limbs. In birds, bats, and pterodactyls, the forelimbs are converted into wings. The alimentary or digestive system consists at first of a long straight canal near the underside of the body and is elaborated into a very complex affair by the development of various glands to assist in digestion and by the lengthening and coiling of the alimentary canal. The circulatory system is much more elaborated than in the lower animals and progressively so in the higher vertebrates. A marked difference from insects lies in the fact that air is conveyed from the lungs or gills to the tissues by medium of the blood corpuscles, whereas in insects the air reaches the tissues of all parts of the body directly through the trachea. The circulation of the blood is thus a much more important function of the life of vertebrates than of insects. In the development of the skeleton, it is to be noted that the spinal cord soon becomes arched over by segments of bone and the brain enclosed in a bony capsule. 
that the underside of the body is supported by arches of cartilage from each segment of the notochord, which are converted into bony ribs, that the gill arches are also supported by bony arches, of which the front pair is later converted into a part of the lower jaw, that the teeth develop originally as scales on the skin of the mouth, that the segmented limb bones retain even among mammals many suggestions of their former fin ray construction. Various additional bones are formed in the skin of the head which coalesce with the more internal bones of brain capsule and jaw to form the solid skull of the higher vertebrates. In fishes, the various bones of the head are more or less separate, as also in the young of higher animals. The eyes are in general highly developed and are the most important of the sense organs. The hearing organs are also very elaborate and complicated. The sense of smell, although usually highly developed, has by no means the importance that it reaches among the higher insects. The vertebrates were, at first and for a long time, adapted to live in water. In reviewing the geological history of the different groups, the successive stages of their invasion of the land and adaptation to terrestrial life will appear. Having once become well adapted to air breathing and the more active and varied life of the dry land, the vertebrates were enabled through their better plan of organization to attain larger size and higher intelligence than the insects, spiders, and land snails, which were their predecessors as land animals. Their internal instead of external skeleton, their more concentrated nervous system, and it might be added, their more concentrated breathing system, for the tracheae of insects may be regarded as lungs distributed throughout the whole body, were probably the principal points of advantage. Vertebrates are much less ancient than the invertebrate groups. At the beginning of recorded geological history, the several groups of invertebrates already were well specialized. They must have had a long previous era of evolution of which there is no record, partly because the most ancient rocks containing it are so altered by crystallization that their fossils have been destroyed partly because many or all of these most ancient animals possess no hard points which could be preserved as fossils. But the earliest vertebrates, appearing about the middle of the Paleozoic era, are only beginning to assume the distinctive characters of vertebrata, so far as can be judged from the fossil remains. They were in the dawn of their development, and as they are followed upward in the geological column, they are found putting on more and more of the characteristic features of vertebrata, and finally, at the end of the long Paleozoic era, becoming adapted, at first very imperfectly, for active land life. The earliest vertebrates had a notochord, but no bony internal skeleton, but some of them had a very complete bony armor. The notochord was gradually replaced by a true backbone in the land vertebrates, but more or less of it still remains in modern fishes, and it was not until the beginning of the age of reptiles that it disappeared among the land vertebrates. Among these most ancient of vertebrates may be mentioned two groups, the ostracoderms, covered with bony armor, or sometimes with only the head armored, first found in the old red sandstones of Scotland, of whose, quote, grisly fish in the lathely flood, end quote, Hugh Miller has given such lively and fascinating descriptions. 
These animals at first glance resemble crustaceans or scorpions, but they are considered as vertebrata, although not true fishes. True fishes appear a little later in the primitive sharks and related types which are preserved, sometimes in great perfection, in the Devonian shales of Ohio and elsewhere. In the sharks and rays, the internal skeleton is still composed of cartilage, as it was in the primitive ancestral vertebrates. The gill slits are also of a very ancient type. They consist of a number of separate slots along the outer surface of the side just behind the head. In all the higher fishes they are covered by a flap of bone and skin called the operculum, or gill cover. To the bather in tropical waters, to the shipwrecked seamen clinging to a raft or afloat in a leaky overloaded boat, the appearance of sharks is the danger most to be dreaded. Swift, powerful, and voracious, many of them huge in size, they are the terror of the warmer seas. Indiscriminate in their appetite, they are fortunately less dexterous than many other fish in seizing their prey at the surface, and may often be frightened away by splashing and disturbance of the water, which their low intelligence does not allow them to understand. It is probable indeed that the number of swimmers actually devoured by sharks is by no means in proportion to their reputation. The largest and most voracious of the man-eating sharks is the great white shark, found in all tropical seas, but fortunately not very common. This species reaches a length of 30 feet and is quite capable of swallowing a man whole. It is, according to Linnaeus, the great fish which swallowed Jonah. Quote, Yonum prophetum ut veteris herculum trinoctum, in huius ventricula tridui spatio basisi verisimile est. End quote. Gessner relates that the bodies of men have been found entire in sharks. On one occasion at Marseille, a man in complete armor, and over a hundred similar cases, quote, have since been recorded. End quote. Huge as is the living white shark, it was far surpassed by some of its extinct relatives. The fossil shark teeth common in the phosphate beds of South Carolina and in other tertiary and Pleistocene formations are sometimes six inches long and five wide, three times as large as in the largest white sharks, and the animal, if of proportionate size, must have attained a length of 90 feet, equaling or exceeding the largest whales. It is possible that sharks of this size still exist, although they have never been reported on good authority, for teeth of similar dimensions have been obtained in deep-sea dredging. A restoration of the jaws of this gigantic extinct shark, with the original teeth all in position, has recently been placed on exhibition in the Natural History Museum in New York. The gape of the jaws is nearly seven feet so that this monster could almost have swallowed a small vessel, crew and all, and the traditional Jonah could easily have walked down his throat if opened for the purpose. Closely related to the white shark are the mackerel sharks, poor beagles, and salmon sharks, not attaining such giant size, but equally swift and voracious. The high triangular back fin and the mackerel-like tail are characteristic features of this group. The basking shark is the largest of the family and the largest of all true fishes, attaining a length of 36 feet and an enormous bulk. Unlike its relatives, it is a dull, sluggish animal and does not pursue large prey. 
The blue sharks, tiger sharks, and cub or harbor sharks are much more common and familiar than the white shark and its allies, and almost equal it in swiftness and ferocity, and sometimes in gigantic size. The dorsal fin is not so high and triangular, and the lobes of the tail are very unequal, the upper lobe projecting far backward, while the lower lobe is small. The blue shark, so commonly seen following ships, and the cub shark, common around the waters of tropical harbors, are usually credited with the dangerous ferocity of the white shark, which they hardly deserve. The rays and skates are related to the true sharks, but have the body flattened out and the pectoral fins extended in a thin, continuous flap along the sides, so that the animal has the shape of a flounder or halibut. They are bottom feeders, living on shells and crustaceans, and harmless, except for the stingrays, which can deliver a severe wound by a slash of the spiny tail, and the torpedoes, which have an electric organ capable of giving a severe benumbing shock to an enemy. The sea devils are gigantic rays, the great wing-like fins expanding 20 feet. Most modern fishes have a bony internal skeleton, and in various respects are higher types than the sharks. There are various partly intermediate forms between sharks and true bony fishes, but their relationships need not be considered here. The perch and bass are usually considered the most typical of this group, and from this type as a center they vary into an endless diversity of form structure and habit. Most of them are marine, but many inhabit freshwater lakes, rivers, and brooks. In the ocean they are abundant everywhere, from shore to far out at sea, from the surface to great depths. Nowhere are they so varied or brightly colored as around the coral reefs of tropical seas, but they are equally abundant in the colder waters of the northern oceans. They form an important part of the food of all maritime peoples. The value of the herring fishery alone is over $37 million annually. The most ancient type of true bony fish are the soft-finned fishes, allies of the herring and the trout. The herring, running in immense schools in all the northern seas, is more used for food than any other fish, and its, quote, spawning and feeding grounds have determined the locations of cities, end quote. Closely allied to the herring is the shad, highly prized as a food fish in the United States, and the menhaden, caught chiefly for its oil and as a manure for fields. The much larger tarpon of the South Atlantic is a favorite game fish, reaching a length of six feet or more and affording exciting sport to the angler. Extinct allies of the tarpon in the Cretaceous seas, Portheus, reached a length of 12 feet. The trout and salmon live partly or wholly in fresh water, the salmon ascending rivers from the sea to spawn, while the trout live entirely in fresh water, running streams or lakes, and the whitefish inhabit the great freshwater lakes of North America. The Pacific salmon enters the rivers only for spawning, takes no food during its desperate struggle up to the headwaters of the stream, and dies when the spawning is completed, the young returning to the sea at the next high water. The Atlantic and European salmon, much more closely related to the trout, spend a much larger part of their lives in fresh water, while on the other hand several species of trout descend for a time to the sea, 
and others live partly or wholly in freshwater lakes and ponds. Salmon and trout are the chief of game fish. In beauty and variety of color, in delicacy of flavor, in fighting qualities and in wariness, they rank with any fish. If the trout and salmon are the favorites of the freshwater fishermen, eels are perhaps the most heartily disliked. Their long, snaky form, ugly color, slimy skin, and their unpleasant addiction to, quote, swallowing the bait, end quote, would be causes enough. But in addition, they are one of the worst enemies of the game fishes. The spawning of the freshwater eel was long a mystery, only very recently solved. The truth is that they descend to the sea to spawn, reversing the habits of the salmon. The carp family includes a great many freshwater fish, mostly small and less active than the salmon group. Both carp and salmon families are found only in the northern temperate regions. The carp and chub, dace and roach, minnow and shiner, are familiar in our brooks and streams, none of them gamey, none very good eating, but passable in absence of better fish. The carp and the nearly related goldfish are natives of China, domesticated there for centuries and introduced into Europe about 300 years ago. Another familiar group of freshwater fishes is the catfish family. They derive their name from the barbels or feelers around the mouth, which suggest the smellers of a cat. They are not scaly, but often head and parts of the body are armored with bony plates. Their especial home is in South America, but they are common also in northern continents and a few in Africa. They are all carnivorous gamey fish, fair to good eating, and most of them are found in river channels or muddy streams. Similar in habits but more graceful in form are the pike and muscalunge, the first living in freshwater streams of all the northern continents, the second in the Great Lakes. In the South Temperate Zone, where there are no true trout, their place is taken by a distinct group of fishes of the same habits. They are the, quote, trout, unquote, of New Zealand, Australia, Tasmania, Patagonia, and the Falkland Islands, and of South Africa. It has been supposed that these freshwater fish, living in the isolated continents of the South, and unknown in equatorial or northern regions, must have spread from one to another region by way of an Antarctic continent now submerged. It has recently been found, however, that these fish are able to live in salt water as well as fresh, so that they may have been dispersed by sea. The largest and most typical of the great groups of bony fishes are the spiny-rayed fish, typified by the perch and mackerel. Numerous freshwater and more abundant marine fish are included in this order. Only a few of the best-known kinds can be mentioned here. The mackerel of the North Atlantic runs in great schools, estimated to contain many millions of fish, varying a great deal from year to year in their course. It furnishes one of the principal fisheries of New England. Larger relatives of the mackerel are the tunny, albacore and bonito of the warmer seas, and the Spanish mackerel of the West Indies. All these are swift, graceful, handsome fishes. The mackerel are preyed upon by their larger relative, the swordfish, which follows the schools to the New England coasts. Its presence is a sign that there are mackerel about. It is one of the swiftest of fishes, 
the graceful compact body forked tail and pointed head with long sword-like upper jaw are all peculiarly fitted for speed the swordfish frequently attacks ships or boats driving its sword through a heavy plank without difficulty the bluefish is another well-known predaceous fish of the north atlantic it is said to be the most destructive of all fishes in the waters it inhabits pursuing the schools of smaller fish and killing far more than it requires for food professor baird has estimated that during their stay on the new england coast the bluefish destroy upwards of twelve hundred million million of smaller fish the order of perch-like fish includes a great variety of familiar fishes freshwater and marine the perch bass darters and sunfish of the still streams and lakes of the north temperate zone the sea bass and their relatives which in australia south america and south africa have invaded the rivers and taken the place and name of perch the bright-colored groups of tropical seas the parrotfish damselfish and angelfish of the coral reefs the sculpins and gurnards are more or less nearly related the flatfishes are a curious offshoot of the spring raid fishes. The body is very deep and narrow, but the fish swims on its side, one eye being twisted around from its normal position so that both of the eyes are on the side which lies uppermost. This side is also darker colored than the underside. In some flatfish it is the right, in others the left side which lies uppermost and shows the eyes and dark coloration. The flounders, soles, halibut, turbot, and plaice are the best known of the flatfish. All are excellent food fishes. The codfish family, codfish, pollock, haddock, and various smaller species, are more remotely related to the spiny fin fishes, and are of great importance as a food fish. For four centuries the banks of Newfoundland have been the chief center of the cod fishery. Among the fishing vessels all nations are represented, and in succession have come the Basque, Dutch, English, American, and Scandinavian fishermen. End of section nine. Recording by Gary B. Clayton.